Welcome to Career in Ruins, where we're really happy that you're still listening. Pardon? Another week, another podcast. I oh, know, we're still going. We're still, still going. Have you had a good week? Oh, I've had a lovely week. The sun started to come out. It started to feel oh, like isn't it nice? field work season. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. Uh, we've got a good week this week. So coming up on today's podcast, we're going to be talking a bit about the media and archaeology. Yeah. We're going to be talking a bit about rubbish. Archaeologists love rubbish. <laughs> archaeology is a load of old rubbish. And uh, we got into with Kath Walker. So uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. She's really interesting and... I know we always say it, but probably one of my favourite takes on the use of the time machine so far. Oh, are we going up a gear? Uh, yeah, I think we are. Well, it's certainly a, a, one, a route we haven't taken so far, so I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. How's your week been, bud? Tell me uh, a bit more. Yeah, so uh, this week, I've mostly been thinking about headlines. Yeah. Headlines in the media. And I think it's fair to say one of the reasons we started this podcast was to give researchers and professionals a bit of a voice that allows them to tell a story that they wouldn't normally get to tell, typically about their career and how they got to where they are, which I think provides a lot of context to the characters in our discipline who kind of construct the past from from their work. But this week, um, a big headline popped up in the UK. Um, Southend Burial Site, UK's answer to Tutankhamun. Whoa. Big headline. And it's it's your classic, <laughs> classic archaeology headline of linking something that everyone knows to an Anglo-Saxon site somewhere in, in um, Southend. Southend. All over Twitter, there were various discussions about this. And I, it got me quite captivated because it's fair to say I've had quite a fun relationship with media mm -hmm. in archaeology and I know you have as yeah. well that on some occasions it's snuck up on us and some of our words have been taken out of context and you're inadvertently discovering a lost city but then other times we've both kind of toyed with media a bit and uh, um, maybe strapped some equipment to the back of a horse or something like that um, where we've intentionally almost trolled the media into Dobinometry <laughs> is a serious science It is, it is a serious science but on, on, on both occasions really it, it kind of sums up two sides of a discussion. On one hand, you've got, should archaeologists be over-representing what they're doing? Should should we stay very true to the science and the discovery and let the media do what the media does? Or do we have a responsibility to sell our subject as best we can and get as many people thinking about archaeology as possible? And I've, I've as I say, I've done both in the past. <laughs> I've been alarmed by what the media's done to my seemingly innocent words. But then also sowed with some very um, hyperbolic seeds, which uh, which was done entirely intentional. And in, in this instance, I suspect the the excavators wanted that publicity. They wanted to make headlines, so they they used a comparison that, that did the job. And on one hand, who are we to judge? But on the other, should we be doing that? It's tricky, though, isn't it? Because part of the reason we've done this podcast is to make archaeology more accessible to mm. more people and to highlight the variety of that archaeology represents, whether it's time periods or artefacts or different scientific techniques. Or, oh, I mean, as we've already seen, we're what five, six episodes in now, and we've had a different person every week, and we talk about different things, yeah. and we haven't scratched the surface. Yeah. So trying to trying to sell. Uh, that story and the understanding of that to the general public is really quite difficult. So by relating it to something like Tutankhamun, you're bringing an Anglo-Saxon discovery, which, if we're being honest, isn't an, a period that's particularly focused on in our studies in early school time, yeah, I think. Yeah. I, I don't remember studying the Anglo-Saxons in school at all. I don't, I don't know if you do. I, I did a little bit, but mostly because I grew up in a, a very Anglo-Saxon yeah. town oh, okay. uh, with a castle. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Damn you. <laughs> um, but, but still, it's, it's, it's a story that wouldn't have been told publicly without that yeah. analogy. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. And, uh, yeah, and people can't perhaps or find it diff It's difficult to relate it to something that people don't understand so if Anglo-Saxons isn't a period that everyone understands and they get that time period and the importance and significance and the richness of that discovery is hard to explain then referring to Tutankhamun is an easy comparison in many ways you're right should we be trying harder to sell the the kind of honest appraisal of what we do in a way to 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 make 
the the more mundane, more accessible mm-hmm. and more exciting in a sense, because we know it's exciting, yeah. the kind of day-to-day grind of what we do. Should we be highlighting that and emphasising that and, and perhaps even working with the media to find ways of selling it in a way that fully represents what we do? At the risk of playing devil's advocate here, then, there are aspects of funding, whether it's in research or public work based around um, Heritage Lottery Fund or um, uh, other aspects to do with academia that have to show that you've had impact. Yeah. And that then is causing perhaps a detrimental effect to the way we have to sell our work as well because we have to show that funding has been successful, we've engaged X number of people, we've had X number of uptakes with regards to media stories and um, impact in universities is huge. It determines how much funding people got. And it's fair to say that in completely inadvertently and accidentally, according to the media at least, discovering a lost city, we were able to show impact that we wouldn't have shown otherwise. And Mm. it, it caused a fair amount of problems on the ground with partners and um, issues in terms of how we we share information within the project and outside of the project. But actually, the impact of it probably allowed us to do a lot more work than we would have done anyway. Mm. Um, and what's what's interesting about this conversation is it's the conversation I've been having in my head for the last week. So it's like <laughs> making a monologue out loud, just arguing with myself constantly. No, you're wrong, man. You're <laughs> wrong. No, I'm wrong. No, I'm wrong. I'm going to play devil's advocate. No, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Um, ultimately, though, I, I'd argue any mention of archaeology in the media, as long as it isn't necessarily related to ancient aliens, is probably good. Mm. Indiana Jones? Uh, the fourth one was a bit terrible. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, dude? Talk um, to me about your week. So, I've had an interesting one this week. I got. I was lucky to have a chance to go to the Marchwood Energy Recovery Facility. Um, just on the edge of... Hang on, what now? <laughs> a waste disposal unit. Okay, okay. <laughs> Basically, so it's this giant um, aluminium dome just on the edge of the new forest. Yeah. And um, it's a majority of Hampshire's waste goes to this location. Um, just everyday rubbish that people put in their bins. And um, they use it to um, fire a furnace that then turns turbines and creates electricity. Okay. Um, so that goes into the national grid. So... Burning, disposing of rubbish to get energy. Yeah, exactly. And it got me thinking that when I was about 12 years old, uh, my dear old mum, she was a a teacher back in my hometown. Avid listener of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Our biggest number one fan. We should send her a T-shirt or something. uh, (laughs) Or a button. Button, yeah. Um, She organised a day-long conference for school kids um, called Archaeology, What a Load of Rubbish. And I, I... on reflection, it probably was the thing that got me into archaeology, and we spent a day with experts okay. looking at um, modern how learning about archaeology, but also looking at how our activities leave an archaeological record. So, effectively, the archaeological record is other than built material buildings. The ah, it's, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. It? It's yeah. leftovers. It's, it's things that have been thrown away, discarded. We get rubbish pits. We get cesspits. We and um, that sort of came flooding back to me that experience where we were going around this this facility and learning about how they would burn x number of tons of um everyday waste material a day to create x number of kilojoules of kilowatts of uh, energy and then we got to the final best bit of the day where we went into the the main area where they use the crane and you pick up rubbish <laughs> and you move it into the furnace and they ask who wants to have a go and I got to have a go I picked up 1.8 tonnes worth of rubbish in this giant claw and um, couldn't help myself going you have saved our lives we are totally grateful <laughs> <laughs> for some reason that just makes me think of that Nisloppy JCB song I don't know why, why uh, but... that's weird I don't know what you're talking about mate um, <laughs> um <laughs> I'm going to glaze over this and move forward. Fair but, enough, fair um, but yeah, as I went there, Clara and picked up <laughs> shed loads of waste mm. and dumped it in and the. Is that mixed waste, just everything. mixed everyday waste, and they were talked about everything that they received in there. But as as I picked it up and put it in, like this picture, a perfect framed picture, just fell out the top of the claw and landed on the ground, and I, it flipped the right way up, and I could see it was just a bit of artwork that someone's probably bought from the range or yeah. Dunnell Mill or something like that. And stand a bit, it had a nice frame and glass thing, and it, I was like, well, that's cultural material. That's, yeah, someone's yeah. bought that, and they've yeah. had it up in their house, and it tells a story about what they deem to be art, and and it it had a 
purpose and a value to that person before they threw it away. Um, and that's going to get incinerated. And that's never going to be in the archaeological record. Yeah. And as I put that 1.8 tonne of rubbish into the furnace, you single-handedly destroyed history. archaeology. <laughs> it, was a, it was a really interesting moment. Then I got thinking, they, they, we, we did, I got, they prized me away from the claw and I let someone else have a go. And we, got, we carried on the tour and they are like, well, at the end of it, we have a certain amount of waste material that we have to use and there's limes and acids they have to get rid of. And, um, but they're like, and this is the stuff that doesn't burn and it goes into road production. Oh, yeah. And so, and it's a minimal, minimal amount of leftover waste. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a bit like concretey, metally, just mm. rubbish. And they, they they mush it all up and turn it into roads. And like so, it's it's sort of everyday items getting turned into mush or burnt and lost, never seen again. But then repurposed and turned into a road. So that will become the archaeological record. <laughs> and <then laughs> we're going to find ancient plastic age roads. Um, like we like we're so fascinated by Roman roads, yeah, and, yeah. and then archaeologists will go. And they had this amazing material. It's it's not concrete. We have no idea how it's produced, <laughs> but it's amazing. And it's just repurposed. people drawing together production sequences <laughs> for these roads. Yeah, and... And it's just repurposed everyday waste. And it was just it, so it was really interesting to think a everyday tons and tons and tons of our material is. Go rightly so. <laughs> going into this furnace, being losses, it's not going into a landfill. It's not going to rubbish pits like we might see in the Iron yeah, Age yeah. or Bronze Age or whatever Roman periods. And rubbish lying around everywhere, and um, it just got me thinking about today and now and how what our footprint yeah. will be like in a thousand, two thousand years time. There's a couple of things that makes me think about it. The first is, is very brief. I was listening to a different podcast the other day. What? Um, I know others exist, apparently. Oh. Outrageous. Um, and they, they were talking about, hypothetically, could we launch all of our rubbish into the sun as a <laughs> way of getting rid of it? And I had similar thoughts about the sort of complete removal of all of this cultural material from Earth. Um, but secondly, we would, as you mentioned there, it's skewing the future archaeological record. And I suspect there's elements in the past that the same happened. We we see the things that endure. We see the, the flint, the glass, the metal, the ceramic. Um, sometimes, if we're very lucky, we see organic materials. But the act of burning refuse material could have been practised in the past. And mm. we would just see areas of burning. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily see that evidence in terms of a recognisable practice. So it's quite interesting to think that the record we see is perhaps skewed towards the inorganic and the survivable, even at point of deposition as well mm. as, as I, just what we see. I guess the best example of that, not necessarily linked to refuse, but the the missing dead of the Iron Age and practices around mortuary yeah, and, uh, when you yeah. look at cremation and uh, yeah. other time periods. And we, there's certainly some time periods where that the human remains are not visible in the archaeological record as pr or as prominent. Yeah, yeah, much less um, As, say... Um, Christian burial grounds, or something like that. yeah, and then we rely so heavily on on burial practices to understand sort of cultural processes and how communities are tied together. That yeah, the Iron Age is a, is a tremendous example where in Iron Age Britain, at least, we see pockets of very established, very clear burial practices. Dorset's one of them, and there are others. East Yorkshire's another, but overwhelmingly, we see fewer burials and indeed fewer cremations than elsewhere in other time periods and other places. And one of the arguments for that is possibly excarnation, so mm. um, sky burials, ah, essentially. So bodies not burning being, them. No, not necessarily, yeah, so being, elements. being left to nature in mm. a sense, to be to be recycled in the same way that, I don't know, consuming meats would recycle, I'm not saying cannibalism, um, that would open up a whole Twitter debate that I'm not prepared <laughs> to get into. Um, but certainly the, the notion of, of excarnation is something that, or the the interpretation of excarnation is something that's been considered for for Iron Age Britain, and to kind of make up for that lack of evidence that is is quite intriguing. Given that from the historical accounts, we we know there are culturally recognisable elements of the Iron Age that would have kind of unified practices, um, and it's visible in a few regions, but certainly not across the country. So it's yeah potentially skewing the record at point of deposition rather than sort of mm. taphonomically as we're more used to dealing with. Mm. 
So, yeah, so I like that. I, I, I quite, well, had a great time playing with the, the claw. How long did it take them to separate you from that claw? Uh, <laughs> I think there was a, a um, they, had, they they pointed me towards a screen that had a thermal imaging camera on, and I went, ooh, shiny thing, and went and looked at something else. Very clever. Um, should we have a listen to Kath? Yeah, so Kath, just a bit of background. Yep. Um, we both know Kath, she's, she's, uh, visiting fellow at Bournemouth, but yep. prior to that, she's been working in the New Forest on a, at the New Forest Heritage Centre. So I, I work in parallel with her now and again. So yep. she's undertaken a PhD which looks at Neolithic pol- polished hand axes, okay. and and just has a really interesting uh, career to date. Loads of different things. So let's jump in and have a listen. Brilliant. <laughs> Welcome to Career in Ruins. Thank you very much. I should say second time, lucky. Um, we have done this before, but I thought it'd be a good idea to sit outside in the lovely sunshine and the wind sort of took control of the whole situation. <laughs> ruined the interview, so apologies for, uh, for wasting your oh, time. No problem. But thanks for joining me today. Um, as you're aware, I guess we, we like to interview professionals with different experiences, different backgrounds, and to give us a bit of an idea of where they've come from, how they've got to where they are today. And then I'm going to throw a few questions at you as well to get get a bit more in-depth insight into okay. your, your, your ideas and your theories and whatnot. But to start off with, it, would you mind just telling us how you got to where you are today, um, your experiences, your education, um, your different jobs? Gosh, yes. It's not been a straightforward route, I think it's fair to say. I'm sure that's the case for many people. Um, first and foremost, I consider myself an archaeologist. And I wanted to be an archaeologist from the age of six. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> um, young. I, mean, I thought I, was, I wanted to get involved when I was young, but not at six. six no, I was six years old. I wanted to be an archaeologist. And um, I spent a lot of time in my grandparents' garden collecting bits of clay pipe and blue and white china and, and anything that I could find. And I would sit outside in the sunshine with my two washing up bowls of, of water and a pastry brush. And I would wash the things I'd found and lay them out to dry in the sun. And then I'd bag them up into freezer bags and write on the outside <laughs> clay pipe. Wow. And we found all my, when we cleared my grandparents' bungalow after they passed away, we found, opened the kitchen cupboard and found all my freezer bags of finds. <laughs> That's <laughs> archaeological Indeed, age six. And um, whether I knew it was archaeology at the time, although I did used to say I wanted to be an archaeologist, whether I kind of understood that what I was doing was in, it was in fact archaeology, I don't know. Did you go back through any of those and find any like, Neolithic vents or anything like no, that? No, sadly okay. not. There's some bre- some seals from the flower bags um, and things like that, but no, um, but I, I do remember it fondly. So that was age six, and um, I went on for quite a few years saying I wanted to be an archaeologist, and my parents thought I'd grow out of it. And I remember started, they started to panic when I sort of got to about 13, 14, and still wanted to be an archaeologist. And they said to me that I needed to get a proper job, and I couldn't. I couldn't be an archaeologist, really. That you know, oh. I need to do something sensible, like be a teacher or or work in the bank or something like that. <laughs> so I looked at other career options, and I thought maybe I'd be a music teacher for a while, because um, I was quite musical at the time. But I really was a terrible singer, so that didn't really work. <laughs> but then the university prospectuses came through the door, and um, you know, A for archaeology right at the beginning, and it was the only thing I really wanted to do. So I thought, well, I've got to go with it, really. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, yeah. But uh, actually, when I was a sixth form student, I'd gone and joined an archaeological project in Sedgeford in Norfolk, okay. Sharp Project, and done a course in basic excavation and recording techniques, their BERT course, effectively, okay. which was a week-long course, which taught the sort of practical practical field skills, if you like. How, and, how old uh, were you when you did that? Um, 17, okay. I think. 16, 17. And uh, I had a whale of a time and decided, yeah, this is definitely what I wanted to do. So went off to Bristol University, did my first degree in straight archaeology. And uh, so I was there for three years. But it was during my first year there that I really got interested in the Neolithic, which is my sort of main period specialism, if you like. Yeah. And uh, I I remember our our course in British prehistory that every undergraduate student does. Mm -hmm. And I read Julian Thomas's Understanding the Neolithic and was completely captivated. Right, so, yeah. Um, so it went from there, really. And at the end of that first year, I was lucky enough to go off to Zambia to do some field work wow. with uh, Larry Barham, um, who was at Bristol at the time. And we spent 10 weeks working on three sites in Zambia, 
Um, what was that? Was that a specific project run out of Bristol? It was, it yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a cracking project, and uh, we we covered a range of different sites and um, full full range of of periods, basically from the really the earliest material right the way through to the present day. Um, so it was really excellent, yeah. So part of that project was identifying new sites by walking through the landscape, picking up worked stone. Right. But I didn't know at that stage how to identify worked stone. And it was there that really I learned by getting it wrong, I suppose. Um, I learned how to identify worked worked stone, worked stone tools. And it was that kind of skill, I suppose, I took away from that project that I that then sort of sparked an interest in, in stone and flint, which has stayed, stayed with me to, you know, to the present day, really. Yeah, so, yeah I guess 10 weeks of looking at worked stone is going to have a pretty good uh, crash course picking up <laughs> identification skills. Oh, we did lots of other things as well. We excavated a cave site. We were on a um, another site on a hilltop. Wow. Um, yeah, really, really amazing. And some anthropological work as well. Um, so what sort of time period was, was that looking at? Oh, uh, really the, the very earliest um, materials. So, so uh, over over a million years old, oh, right, right. To the, to the, right to the present day. Okay, so, okay. yeah. So quite broad, broad range. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's brilliant. Um, so I got this these two interests really. I'd got an interest in um, in the Neolithic and an interest in in worked stone. So the two things kind of came together at the end of my first year at university, and then um, they they really sort of directed me to to my master's okay. year, which I did over in Cardiff with Alistair Whittle in the European Neolithic. Oh, wow. So I kind of left the the, uh, the African archaeology yeah, to one yeah. side, but went with the with the European Neolithic. Had a wonderful year there, crash crash course in the Neolithic, which was really excellent. I uh, really enjoyed it, and then started a PhD back at Bristol with Josh Pollard. Mm-hmm. Um, the following year, and uh, I moved to Southampton with Josh when he got the new post over there okay. so I started a PhD at Bristol but moved to Southampton it was during my time at Bristol I registered as a part-time um, PhD student I should say and ended up doing a lot of teaching for Bristol Uni so Professor Richard Harrison's teaching for comparative world archaeology I ended up I did that for um, three years I think in the end wow. two years with Richard and then um, a year with somebody else afterwards okay. Um, but at that point, I thought I really need to get my head down and 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 focus on the writing. So I um so I I, I basically just spent the next three years working solidly on my on my thesis, and that was um, the title of that was axe heads and identity and investigation into the roles of imported axe heads in identity formation in Neolithic Britain. Britain okay. So I was um, inspired by the work of Prosher Jad. So the work on imported jade axe heads, oh, wow, and yeah. I used that as a sort of launch pad and looked at other imported axe heads. So it was axe heads that I really got interested in. I must admit, um, looked at other imported axe heads in in Britain and what they told us about identity and contacts and and continental connections. And in a nutshell, what did they tell us? <laughs> what did they tell us? Oh crikey! Um, so the the jade um, kind of. I looked at the dating of, of when they arrived in Britain to see if we could tell any more about them because we've got around 119 of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pierre Petricin and his team with Alison Sheridan, wonderful Alison Sheridan up mm-hmm. in Scotland, um, they looked again at all of these across Europe to see if they could um, fine-tune the dating of what, what, what was happening when. Um, and we've only got a couple of these from sealed or datable contexts in Britain. Right. So all of the 119, the dating of, the, of when these arrived were based on these two. So I was looking at the contextual information to see if we could kind of fine tune it a bit to see exactly when they arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, made a little bit of progress with that, but it's still still it's still open to, for debate, I think. But um, Pierre Patricam believed that these really fine, the finest jadeite axe heads were sacred objects. Right. So, and they seem to be very much at the forefront of the Mesolithic Neolithic transition. So, around four thousand BC in Britain. So they were really, really important items. Very, very special. Um, we've got other a small number of axe heads potentially from um, from Brittany, from Plusilium, mm-hmm. from um, Saladin, the quarries there, of this metadolorite type A. We've got a handful of those, which um, perhaps a little more mundane, but nevertheless important because they travelled that distance. I yeah, think. Yeah. Then I looked at some special flint axe heads 
the Crudwell, what I call the Crudwell Smeric type. Right. Uh, Mike Pitts had, had, called, had referred to these as, as Crudwell axe heads in the past, and there's a group in, in Scotland called Smeric axe heads. Some of them are, are very highly polished in Scotland, referred to as all over polished axe heads. But this group, Alan Savile had previously suggested, um, were made from flint that originated in Denmark. Right. Which is why I had a look at them. Um, I suspect that they probably. The flint probably didn't originate in Denmark. That was my my conclusion okay, for those, okay. but they were they were fascinating nonetheless, and clearly um, very special objects because of the the sort of the the thought process behind the selection of the raw material and the forms and finishes they were given, um, mm. where they were deposited and so forth. So I looked at those. Um, my favourite bit really was looking at axe heads with rectangular sections which are very much a Danish form um, originating in the TRB, the Funnelbeaker culture or um, the later, the single grave culture that followed. So I had a look at those and uh, it it was those actually that really were one of the main areas of interest early on but many colleagues had suggested that I couldn't do anything with these because they were so readily collected in in recent years because they're so beautifully made. Mm -hmm. They were perfect collector's pieces and they were for sale on the open market. So the suggestion was that any of these that cropped up in museum collections in Britain are likely to have been modern collector's pieces. So I put together a catalogue of all of these and looked at the background information, the context, and um, I've pulled out about 50 of those, which I believe are genuine prehistoric objects Excellent. which um yeah all, all good stuff so it's fascinating so uh, this i can tell from the smile on your face while you're talking talking through that you obviously absolutely loved your research at the t- no, on reflection at least maybe not why oh sure doing. on reflection i mean we all have those sort of <laughs> moments of or, or days possibly weeks of tearing our hair out i know you're going through the same at the moment yourself that's where you think why am i doing this but um i remember but when i was coming to end my master's and i was talking about doing a phd um, somebody said to me, a PhD is 10% brilliance and 90% endurance. And I told myself that every single day. <laughs> and I think that's really true. Um, yeah, so I finished that at, and uh, passed that at the end of 2015. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously started looking for a job and uh, Googled. Well, I thought, where would I really like to live to mm-hmm. start with? You know? Yeah, good, good, good way to look yeah. for jobs. I like that. <laughs> uh, Googled jobs in the New Forest and this job here at the New Forest Heritage Centre running the eCademy project was being advertised but the closing date was the following day and I thought there's no way I can get an application in in time but and I thought well nothing to lose so mm-hmm. I, I managed to get an application in very quickly for this and um, and sure enough uh, got the job um, and uh, I've been doing this for, well, since January 2016. Okay. Um, was doing that full time. It's been that long. It's been that long, I know. Oh, I mean. Scary, isn't it? So it's a four-year project. Mm-hmm. And it's part of a, um, what was a Heritage Lottery funded landscape partnership scheme overseen by the New Forest National Park Authority. Mm-hmm. So Academy is one of 21 projects in the scheme, uh, working with the other organisations across the forest. But this project is, the, this lead partner is, is New Forest Heritage Centre. So the main aim of the project has been to create a website called New Forest Knowledge, mm-hmm. nfknowledge.org, if anyone would like to yeah. check, go and check it out. It's very good. I can recommend <laughs> it highly. <laughs> um, we've done this in partnership with one of the other projects, Heritage on My Doorstep, led mm-hmm. by James Brown, the New Forest National Park Authority. And we've pulled our resources to create this website. So the background to this really was to create a, a resource for researchers of New Forest information and the starting point really was the, to digitise the collections here at the New Forest Heritage Centre. So that's both the, the library and the museum collections um, to make um, some of this material available online. Mm-hmm. So that was the starting point but we've also been linking in with other museums, libraries and archives which hold New Forest relevant material. Okay. Um, so we're able to display some of their search results from their catalogues um, online. Um, we've also got a, um, a function or facility for members of the community to add their own research, their oh, own memories, photographs, mm-hmm. so they can contribute to this resource and and hopefully um, you know make make good use of it themselves. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, sort of the, it's that multi-layered sort of approach to it. It's not just researchers adding to that information or um, 
it's making it accessible to all and allowing all to feed into that understanding. That's it. That's a two-way process. Mm, absolutely. Um, and the mapping function is a particular highlight. Yeah. So um, being able to overlay um, maps and historic photographs. Mm-hmm. And obviously we've got the Hampshire HER data mm-hmm. as well now, which is, which is hugely useful. And, uh, yeah, going back um, a few weeks, because what I should have said is, since January this year, I've I'm, I've gone down to working part time here mm-hmm. at the Heritage Centre and picked up another job working um, eighteen and a half hours a week over at Hengisbury Head. Ah, what a sight! So a couple couple of days a week at Hengisbury Head as a curator and collections manager over there, and um, we had a conference. A, a few weekends yeah, ago. Yeah, did. I popped along to that. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was good fun. Um, intense couple of days, but really, really enjoyed it. So we're celebrating 40 years over there since mm-hmm. since the last cam- major campaign of excavations back mm-hmm. in the 1980s. And uh, I presented a, um, a paper on the early Neolithic of Hengisbury Head and the Lower Avon Valley. When I was looking at some of the sites and finds from the area, I, I homed in on the Holdenhurst Long Barrow. Oh, yeah. And I went out in the car to see exactly where the barrow was because it's now under modern housing. Right. And I was in the car thinking, well, I know roughly where it is, but where where can I pinpoint it more exactly? And I thought, well, what I really need to do is do a bit of map progression and um, have a look at modern maps, um, and, and you know, as, as well as some historic maps and so forth. And I suddenly realised that, the New Forest, New Forest Knowledge actually covered this area as well. So I was able, on the side of the road, I had my phone out and was able to use, I did a bit of a field test Excellent. of New Forest Knowledge, which was um, which was really nice, actually, and it worked. It confirmed the location. It did confirm Fantastic. the location, so that was great. That's great. There we go. Yeah, lots to learn about Kath there. Yeah. I've, I've, I've only recently started to get to know Kath. We've started working on a project at Hengisbury um, yeah. in a new line of work. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's nice to see where she came from a little bit. That's really interesting. Yeah, really interesting. I, I love uh, something we've seen with all us because so far is these um, work experiences or placements that they do in their early parts of their academic career, I guess. And that, that 10 weeks out in Zambia must weeks, have been I know. fantastic. What, a, what an experience that must be. And, and the best way to learn your trade. I think it's the best thing about our jobs as well. When, How else would you go to Zambia for 10 weeks and sort of live and work? And it's just, it's beyond going somewhere for a holiday, isn't it? You get a very different experience of a place. That's it. Uh, something I really enjoy about yeah. you know, our line of work. Absolutely. Very fortunate. That, I'm not right in thinking you weren't alone in that region. <laughs> yeah, you should say. Obviously, we, as Kath alluded to, we were in the Jack Hargreaves room, which is the research library or reference library in the New Forest Heritage Centre. Um, and they've got a team of fantastic volunteers that work with them. And uh, Patrick came and joined us halfway through. So you might hear a bit of clicking or tapping or switching on of computers. Oh, that's wonderful. So I, there was an element of Kath's PhD work, which kind of I found quite interesting because... Um, I was fortunate in a way for for my own research that I focused on things that nobody really wants, mm-hmm. um, like debris of production. No one's <laughs> going to be putting that on their bookcase other than maybe me. Um, but Kath obviously was researching something that is aesthetically beautiful mm-hmm. and is a collector's piece, as, yeah. as she said. And it's quite interesting to see the, the problems that that brings with it in terms of the record not being incomplete because people are keeping them, trading in them, selling them. Yeah. It's, there's a lot to be said for studying old bits of clunky old metal. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never even considered the idea of a collector's item influencing the archaeological record until speaking with Kat. It's just not something that's crossed my path. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, I, within 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 my own sphere, we hear about um, really sort of precious bronzes and gold pieces being traded as part of the illicit antiquities um, black market. But I'd never really consider the impact of that on someone's research yeah we think about the ethics of it the problems of it the, the sort of general impact but the sort of direct line of impact in understanding neolithic popula- populations and migrations and communities and relationships that's just lost lost because somebody wants something that looks nice on their shelf that's it 
But going back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast with this idea of just throwing away of material and rubbish, um, there's no, I don't think there's too many concerns that that 1.8 tonnes worth of rubbish that I shoved in the incinerator contained any precious items. These are things that uh, might hang around a bit longer. Well, and... You get some lovely pieces in the range. <laughs> nice bits of artwork. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the second interview we've had where um, we've talked to someone who's quite interested in something that could have been a weapon in the past, mm. perhaps in terms of axe heads um, or indeed a functional item. Christian obviously yes, was, yeah, yeah. was into his halbards, mm-hmm. um, which an aspect of his research was was looking into were they symbolic, were they functional. Uh, I'd be quite intrigued to, to look at some of Kath's work to see, to see what kind of conclusions she draws from her, yeah. her, her objects. She's going to touch on a bit more about it as we go forward with the, with the interview, but it, things like Christian's work with Uswear, and Kath, Kath did say she was mentioned to me that these these things were being repolished and repurposed over a very very long time period so and multiple generations were, were processing these things so um again whether you I, I, just this is my own thoughts off the yeah, top of my yeah, head yeah. i don't know anything really about the subject <laughs> but i'd be fascinated how you swear falls within repolished axes yeah 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 how do you how do you identify and sort of classify that it's quite can't interesting that, but. no but <laughs> Going back to the very beginning of, of that conversation, um, the roots within or through which people get into archaeology is becoming increasingly varied. So we've had the accidental archaeologists, we've had seemingly many people picking A for archaeology and a prospectus, which I suspect is a story we all tell people from <laughs> time to time. But the I love the idea of being six years old and collecting clay pipes in your garden, but not just collecting them, cataloguing, bagging them, them, cleaning them, weighing them, (laughs) really preparing yourself for a career in ruins. It's good. It's good. It's impressive. That's great. Um, Should we listen to a bit more? Yeah, let's, let's hear a bit more. Fantastic. Is there a piece of work that you've been involved with or that you've produced sort of, um, that you're particularly proud of, that you're really happy with the output, whatever that may be? It doesn't necessarily have to be a paper or anything like that, but uh, is there anything you, you, you look, reflect back on and think, yeah, that was good? Yeah, so um, we've talked quite a lot about my PhD work already, but there was one case study within that which still stands out in my mind as, as, as a favourite. And I was looking again at the Julie Berry's grave flint axe find right. from um, from Chilham in Kent, from a, a non-megalithic long barrow in Kent. And I've picked this one because it was the one example that was held up as being a, a sort of definitive answer, if you like, a, a classic case study mm-hmm. for um, Scandinavian flint axe heads found in Britain, and one coming from a, a sort of sealed archaeological context, if right. you like. But when I put that, I looked at that, alongside the my complete catalogue of them it was almost too good to be true it didn't quite fit in terms of, of um, style and dating I, I didn't think so I wanted to really get to grips with how we know what we know about that axe head so I went back through the literature and dug out the old the newspaper reports right. at the time mm-hmm. and I came to the conclusion that I thought there was a a reasonably strong possibility that it had been planted in the excavation oh. due to the sequen- sequence of events and the wording of the of the articles at the time and what else was happening in the in the area. So um, I really, really enjoyed that for the detective work involved. I mean, it's it's not conclusive. I'm sure that uh, you know others would argue against that, but it was just going through in that level of detail to to propose an alternative. Um, output for that yeah, yeah. yeah so when was it when was it published in the newspapers is it 1900s or? um it was excavated in the 1930s, 1930s. so there were two phases of excavation that we're talking about here 1936 and 1938 mm-hmm. and um yeah it was it was it was published uh, around around that so time, an so. early example of alternative truths <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe but it's fascinating stuff so i really enjoyed that yeah right, that's, so good that's, fun. that's good that's good yeah does it, uh, there's any any bit of archaeological work that involves a bit of detective work I mean, as, as you, you know, I love a bit of mapping, map regression and historic maps and looking at remote sensing and sure. trying to pick, pick apart why a monument looks how it does is my favourite bit and using reference material so I can completely understand how delving through the archives to try and understand this too good to be true moment. <laughs> it's all detective work, isn't it? That's I think it's, it. yeah, it's what makes it interesting. That's it. 
So move, moving on to the next question then, the, the, you, you've talk, touched on what you're particularly proud of. Is there any work that you've come across or you've observed from afar that you've been quite envious of, that you, you'd love to have been involved in, whether it's a particular discovery or um, a, a site that you, you just really like but you've not had the chance to work on? Oh, sure. I mean, we were talking a bit about Hengisbury Head earlier and having joined the team relatively recently there, We've been reflecting on you know, 40 years since the, the last major campaign of excavations. So working on that project back in the 80s, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't born when the project started, but um, I was by the time it finished. <laughs> um, but uh, I missed Not out on that. Not six years old by then. No, absolutely. <laughs> I missed out on that opportunity. So, I mean, it was it was great hearing what um, what the experts had to say and what the what the people who worked on those projects had to say back then. And it's multi I mean, because you've got me- a huge mesolithic site on... Um, there's, there's a fair amount of mesolithic material. Upper Paleolithic um, okay. is what it's, you know, Nick Barton's work is, is one aspect that is really famous for, yeah, cracking up a Paleolithic site. Um, but also Barry, Barry Cunliffe's work on the Iron Age port mm-hmm. um, is another of the, of the key points. But yeah, multi, multi-period. Multi-period. You've got um, Barrows, you've got Roman, Roman dikes, or is that the Iron Age? The Iron Age dikes, well, um, we say they're Iron Age. Everyone's always said they're Iron Age, but are they? We've got no real dating for okay. them, so they escape for, for looking again at the, at the double dikes. Mm-hmm. You know, is there something else going on there? Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's cracking multi-phase side. And some pretty high-status finds. Well Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, the Bush Fox Barrow, which I can see from my office window, which is uh, not a bad view, I have to say. Um, but uh, the burial of the high status or the cremation of the high status women with, um, you know, with with, with grave goods, uh, mm. really, really interesting. Oh yeah, that, that's yeah. Any, being involved in any of that would have been fascinating. I think you're, you're right. Um, so that that leads on nicely because it leads on nicely to our final question because we're talking look looking back at historic excavations and whatnot. Our, our final question we we ask our participants is that we, Derek and I have actually made a um, working time machine and um, you can uh, you can have a ride on this for, for free. Um, we're offering yeah. all participants in the podcast a free ride in our time machine. Yeah. Uh, we do get you to sign a, a waiver in case anything goes wrong, but uh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Nothing's gone <laughs> wrong yet. Um, although we may have caused the extinction of the Neanderthals, but um, that's, oh, really? that's, that's oh, another discussion. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Congratulations! Here's your ticket. You're welcome. Welcome on board. Where Where would you like us to take you? Where are you going to go, and what are you going to observe? This is a tough one, isn't it? I've been reflecting on this, and my answer that I gave to you last time, and I thought, should I change my mind? I thought, no, actually, I'll stick I with loved what. Your answer last really? Time, so I'm glad you said that. Okay, so um, I'd, I'd, I mean, my, my fascination for axe heads um, and. Uh, love of jade axe heads in particular so i'd like to go back to those neolithic quarry sites high up in the italian alps um, where the where the the, the jade for the jade type high status jade type was was quarried for making these axe heads wow so how, how high are this is up in the quite high up in the mountain high up in the alps um a, a couple of thousand meters high up in the alps and um, yeah these these amazing quarry sites and we're talking Five thousand years ago. So um, the earliest jade was um, the, the jade, earliest jade axe and jade axe heads were made about five thousand three hundred. But okay. we're we're looking a bit later than that probably for the for these really high status ones, maybe four thousand six hundred something like that. So no modern techniques. Available. No, not at all. So you're sort of fire setting these blocks of jade to, to remove these blocks of jade high up in the Alps. Um, this would be, would have been in the summer months because it would have been too tricky really to get up there in in, in the winter. <laughs> But bringing these blocks back down, um, down, down the mountains to to produce um, sort of rough axe mm-hmm. axe forms, and then more reshaping taking place in the Paris basin. So how so they were moving the rough outs quite a long way from the original source that they were taking. So they yeah they were quarrying the blocks and then working them at sites further further down. Um, yeah, I'm potentially making the rough outs up there as well. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, reworking in the Paris Basin and then further um, shaping and polishing in the Morbihan area of France. Um, and then some of these we know have made the way across to across to Britain. So they've so. travelled hundreds of miles from the top of this obscure location. Like oh. obviously a very rich source of decent stonework. Oh, sure. They... Um, Pierre Petrican referred to these high status, these, these beautiful jade axe heads, the finest jade type ones. As being sacred objects, right? So I'd love to be able to follow their route to see where they went and why. From start to finish. From start to finish. That's a great idea. Yeah, it's a good idea. 
they, the lump of rock comes out. Poof, that's all. How are they going to get it down? <laughs> um, that, that's well, fascinating in its own right. Maybe, yeah. Killing anyone. <laughs> <laughs> how did they? Yeah. How did they do that? But um, yeah, that, that would be. It would be great to follow the story mm. of the jade. And so the the axe axe heads are quite elaborate as well. So I mean, just when you've got the finished product from making beautiful polish and that's size or other patterns on them or um so some of them are beautifully ground and polished mm -hmm. so um you know there some of them have got this really high gloss polish which is thought that they were given in the Morbihan region okay. of, of Brittany um before some of them moved across to Britain but we're talking over a thousand hour, hour, hours of, yeah. of polishing to get to create these finishes and that's just the finish let alone <laughs> yeah I mean this is, these Start. have got a long um long history so they would have been they would have been exchanged they passed down probably through through generations okay so possibly re reworked or re re oh sure we know that some of them have changed their 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 form of their forms um, and uh, yeah Pierre Petrocano's team created this, um, this this chronology this typology of, of these axes so we know roughly what shapes were occurring at what dates and it's been quite important the actual the final shapes and forms they were given and um, we've got some cases where they've been where jade axes have been perforated as, as well so you get little ones with, with you get some with holes um so or they'd be too big for that both okay. yeah yeah yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. I love the idea of like, you're the first person to have decided to follow a specific artifact from start to finish. And I think rightly so on, in this case with their length of time that they've been in use. And when did they actually arrive in Britain? That's They could tell us, we could we <laughs> yeah, find out the answer it. to that. You that's know, it. we have a fair idea, but uh, yeah, can't be 100%. So, um, yeah. oh, perfect. Kat, thank, thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's been really, really interesting. You're very welcome. It's great to hear about your career in ruins. <laughs> is epic yeah I, I as someone who spends many many an hour obsessing over the biography of objects and the the chenopretoire or the operational sequence the, the, the chenopretoire <laughs> the operational chain <laughs> um, of actually fabricating materials and things to use the time machine to go back and see that sort of from the birth of the object from the kind of extraction through its early stages of production all the different people who would be involved in that the the individuals the communities the groups who would fabricate something change it pass it on trade it recycle it what a great use of a time machine i mean it's fairly time invested yeah well i was, was going to say i think we should add a fast forward button um, purely for the polishing of the axes alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A thousand hours of um, polishing. So yeah, it's a, just turning a dial up, isn't it? It's, <laughs> yeah. It should, shouldn't but be too I, hard. I suspect but... Keith could have done with that as well. With his, <laughs> yeah, his so. extinction event. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's fantastic. And I, 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 Kath and I share some, some um, aims there, I think, in terms of understanding where something came from it's very easy in archaeology as we, we've talked about a bit on this podcast already that we we basically deal with rubbish and ruins and we we only ever see the end product mm. and something i spend a lot of time doing and kath obviously has spent a lot of time thinking about it as well is the huge sequence of events that goes on before that and every one of those is is a human being or a group of human beings doing something with an object and it's those stories that we want to tell yeah. and there's such variety from point of extraction in the Alps to something being repolished and retasked in the UK, that each one of those stories is as important as another. And yeah. I, I love to have that time machine experience. The other thing that got my attention was the not only the moving of the object and the number of people and the skills and investment of it, but also the passing of passing on of knowledge and experience and associated importance of these objects and the process. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that there's there's an element of memory there mm. and objects almost holding on to a memory for, yeah. for people. And we're very used to writing down our thoughts and feelings or indeed recording them on a podcast. Monumentalising them. Yeah, yeah. but that, that element of encoding something of your family or yourself. I mean, many of us have a, a tin of random screws and keys in our cupboard that we may have inherited from our grandparents' sheds. And those objects tell a story to us and these objects could have told a similar story in the past. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. I, I just love this idea of just following a single artifact from start to finish. And being a stone object, it's slightly easier than, say, some of your metallic, <laughs> metallurgy work. I don't want to follow every bit of item that's going to go into that furnace. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> I know, you'd be, you'd be there for... Yeah, it's a really 
good artifact to have to follow. I, I like that. I like that a lot. And it's even its very existence, I guess, tells us something about the time period it was made in. Um, we, we talk about the Neolithic, and we're very familiar with that as archaeologists being kind of when agriculture really picks up in Europe particularly. And knowing that people are out there making these seemingly high-status, beautiful, cherished objects, these people aren't tilling the fields at the same time. They're presumably specialists in their trade. Mm. So we can see from the, this production sequence how specialisms emerge and occupy different people within society. So the stories can be quite big that you can tell from just one or two objects. Yeah, no, it's good. So I like that. Um, interesting uh, uh, favourite bit or most interesting bit of re research ties in you perfectly it's with your better rant at the beginning. Oh, I know, yeah. I know. So there's me worrying about archaeological fake news at the beginning. And then, uh, 1930s. been identifying it going way back, so there's nothing new. The archaeology uh, of archaeology fake news. That's quite remarkable. And the idea that someone in the 30s planted an object to kind of elevate a site or a story is quite <laughs> remarkable. Not such a bad idea. Yeah. No. <laughs> we'll, we'll shy away from that one. No, I like that. But it, it tied in perfectly, didn't it, with the, with this idea. And it's obviously something that we as a profession have been uh, questioning or dealing with for quite some time now. Yeah, no, I mean, there are big, massively famous elements. Piltdown Man, for example, mm. is one, um, mm. which our, our colleague Miles Russell has done a lot of work in. In fact, we should get him on a future podcast. Yeah. Um, shout out now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a good week this week. I think Cass fascinating and, um, yeah, really enjoyed listening. Yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And now you and I are going off on adventures. We are. We? So yes. we've got two more podcasts yep. to go out before... Um, we have a bit of a break. You're off to Greece. Yep. To yep. our fantastic site with our VLAP colleagues. Aye, uh, yep. And I'm off to Cook Islands for a few weeks to uh, do <coughs> work. Yep, uh, yep, yep. Um, Swimming around. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but um, so, yeah, just a bit of an advanced heads up more than anything, isn't, yeah, isn't we're, it? Yeah, we're going to try and squeeze out a couple of episodes while we're away. We may have some guests appear on yep. the, uh, in our podcast booth over the next few weeks. We'll, we'll hopefully get you on weekly, but... Uh, uh, don't hold your breath too long. <laughs> yeah, but the, the idea, I guess, is two more episodes after this Yeah, um, with an extra friend along in tow. And um, and then we, well, we it's been a great experience so far, but we need yeah. to have a bit of a taking stock and working out working out how we're going to go forwards with it. Yeah, yeah, we've enjoyed this process. We we hope to do more. I think we will do more, but mm -hmm. what form that will take, we'll, we'll see in a few weeks' time. That's it. And if you want to hear more... Let us know. Yeah, and yeah. Just any feedback on social media, positive and or negative, is is good. Yeah. And uh, yeah, um, we'll we'll see you over the next few weeks, one way or another. All right. Cheers, mate. Have a good one. Bye. -bye. Thank you for listening to the Career and Ruins podcast. Please make sure that you subscribe to our downloads on whatever whatever system you receive your podcast from make sure you comment do send us any questions or thoughts you have on social media we're on twitter we're on instagram we also have a facebook page and uh, we'll, we'll look to trying to reply to as many questions as we can hopefully in the podcast as well and sound production on this episode has been done by guy from bucketofsound.com